Have you ever had to have something before? Ever wanted something so badly it just consumed your mind, consumed your heart, it drew your affections, you just couldn't get it off of your mind, you know, you woke up, you thought about it, you went to sleep, you thought about it, Um, your affections, your passions were just drawn to it. But even while you had this deep longing, this deep desire for it, you kind of knew in the back of your mind that it wasn't what you should do, that actually would lead you to destruction, that it actually might be your surest downfall. I, I've seen this, uh, I've seen this of all places uh, on Halloween with children. So you uh, you have these children that show up to your door all bright eyed, and uh, and they have one thing on their mind, and it is a sugar rush. And so they come with a sugar rush in mind, but those who are wiser know that something else awaits them, that a really bad stomach ache and a crash. Um, and so we see it with children, but on a more serious note, you know, I've, I've seen it working with, uh, with youth for several years. I see it a lot with, with high school girls. You know, they are so desperate for a relationship that by their desperation, they attract the wrong kind of guy. And what they wanted so badly and what they thought would fulfill them actually goes and brings about their, their destruction. And you see it actually with a with lottery. Most people that, that enter the lottery and, and win the lottery, um, the lottery actually is their undoing. And most times, five, ten years after the lottery, they're back into poverty. What is it for us? Right? Maybe it's, maybe it is a relationship. You know, maybe it is a job. Maybe it is a car. Maybe it's something else that you know. But what is it that you, you feel your heart wanting? You feel your heart desiring, but it, it could destroy you. It could destroy you. You see, sometimes the worst things for us, the things that will be our undoing, are the things that we want the most. What happens when what you want the most is is the surest way to destroy you? And that's what we're going to talk about today um, in Romans. And so if you have your Bibles, if you want to open up, we're going to be in Romans 1. Be in Romans 1. We're talking about our desires being broken, that um, we have a bentness in our longings. We're going to pick up in verse 18. So Romans 1, 18, and we're going to read through 32. Paul's writing here, he says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God, the truth about God, for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up, to dishonorable passions. 
For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with men, with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of, right, of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's a heavy, heavy text. Before we dive into this, I want to look at where we've been so we can understand where we're going. Last week, Pastor Colin read Romans 1, 16 through 17, which is a theme verse of Romans. And it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew and also for the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So what Paul is doing here, what Paul just said, he says, listen, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it being proclaimed at all. Because in it, God is revealing his righteousness. But he's, in this next session, what we're going to talk about is God is, is Paul's answering two questions. He's answering, one, why must the righteous live by faith? Right? He's saying, why, why do the righteous need to live by faith? What does that make, why does that make a righteous life? And he's also answering this question, why is a received righteousness the only way to be in right standing with God? So why is it, he's, he's asking, why can't I be a good person and receive righteousness? Why can't I do enough good things and be credited righteousness? Right? These are, these are questions that are, like, that are hidden, that are implicit in what he just said in the theme of Romans. And he's going to go now into this next section. He's answering those questions. He's answering, why is it that none of us can be good enough to stand before God and be righteous? Why is it all of us fall short? And so in what we just read, starting in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul's talking about sin. He unpacks sin, and he says, this is why, this is why none of us can stand before God is righteous. And so he shows, we're going to some dark places because he's showing the human heart. He's showing ourselves. He's holding up a mirror and saying, do you see what we're really like? This is why righteousness must be given as a gift, and it can't be attained through our works. So the big idea in our section, we're going to be here for a couple sermons, okay? So we're going to be looking at sin in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through 320. And the big idea is that God is justified in showing his wrath against sin. God is justified in showing his wrath against sin. That's the overriding theme of all those things. Um, for today, so for today, if you're here and you're far from God, I'm so thankful that you're here. Uh, I want you to know that you're loved, you're cared for, and we're really glad that you're here. Um, my goal for you today, if you're here and you're kind of questioning you're far from God, my goal is that you would see that God exists. That God exists. Not only does he exist, but he is the one that makes sense of all the longings of our heart and our, in the world around us, that creation testifies to him. And that when we put God and when we see him in his rightful place, we will be restored to what we were meant to be. We'll begin to be able to live consistent lives as he has made us to. If you are a Christian here, so thankful. Um, for us, my goal is that we would uh, we would have a greater understanding of God's wrath 
and sin? Because only when we have a, a true understanding of God's wrath against sin are we going to be passionate about his salvation. Do you see Paul is, is laying upon the weight of us, our sins, so that we might be passionate about the salvation that he brings? For only when we understand the weight of sin will we understand the magnitude of grace. So, the big idea for this passage, the big idea for 118 through, uh, through 32 is that God's present wrath, the way that God shows his wrath right here and right now, is by giving people over to what they want. Giving Sometimes the worst thing that God can do right here and right now against someone is to give them over to what their sinful heart wants. So, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at first the cause of God's wrath. Okay, that's in verses 18. So if you have your Bibles and you look, it's verses 18 to 23. What causes God's wrath? We're going to look at the cause of God's wrath. We're going to look at the consequence of God's wrath. So what does God's wrath do? What does it bring about? What's the consequence of it? And then uh, we're going to see the hope of freedom. Okay, it's not, it's, it's, it's there, it's brief, but we're going to get to talk about a little bit of the good news today. Okay, so it's not all going to be, it's not all going to be talking about, uh, about sin. So first, the cause of God's wrath. Um, we need to understand the Bible there, it talks about wrath, God's wrath in two different ways. One, there is a future wrath. Okay, the Bible talks about it as the day of the Lord. There is a day on which the Lord is going to judge people. Right, this great white room, right, white throne judgment upon which unbelievers and believers will stand. Right, and, and God will will bring forth justice. Um, we know that believers are spared because of Christ's sacrifice, but unbelievers will have to give an account. So there's a, a day in which God deals with evil. Right, and we we want this. We want this. Hopefully, if you look at the world, you're saying, listen, I would love for there to be some justice. I would love for for you know there to be something that settles it. That that takes away evil. And this is what the Bible talks about, is that there is a day on which the Lord settles all evil and he, he destroys evil. He destroys it. It's gone. It's no more. So we have a future day of wrath, but also there's a present day. As Paul says in verse 18, he says, for the wrath of God is revealed or is being revealed or has been revealed. It's a current state. God's wrath isn't just something in the future, but it's something that is going to be seen here and now. Here and now. So God's wrath is also seen in the present. Now, I want to talk about something most of us have and hear this when we talk about wrath. We say, well, listen, I believe in a God of love, right? And this is what our culture says all the time. I believe in a God of love. And so since I believe in a God of love, I don't understand how can a God of wrath be there because aren't love and wrath mutually exclusive? Like if I love somebody, I don't have wrath towards them. But I want you to see that actually it's because God is loving that he has wrath, right? Wrath, what wrath is? Wrath is settled opposition anger against something that is evil against something that harms and so you see this with parents parents right you have wrath when your child is is making poor choices because you are settled against their poor choices because you know it hurts them and it destroys them you're settled against when they make poor choices of friends because you know that those friends are actually going to hurt and destroy and so we we see that actually being against something can be good when you what you're against is actually for their benefit and so it is because God loves, it is because God is so good that he actually shows wrath. Because no judge would be good if he turned a blind eye towards evil. Right? If he turned a blind eye and said, listen, what you do, it doesn't really matter. I'm going to look over here because, you know, I'm about grace. And so you can murder, you can kill, you can rape, you can pillage. And I'm not really that concerned about it because I'm, I'm graceless. I'm gracious. That would not be a loving or a good God at all. And so God brings wrath because he is just and because he is good. And so God's goodness demands that he hate evil and that he punishes sin. 
But you see, all of us want this to some degree, right? We are all like, listen, I'm, you know, I'm hoping Hitler, I'm hoping Stalin, I'm hoping these guys get what's coming to them. I'm hoping, you know, Boko Haram, I'm hoping all these other people are, they're committing these atrocious crimes or getting what deserve, what they deserve. But you see, it's not just those things that bring about God's wrath. It's all injustice. It's all evil. And so what about us? What about times where we bring about injustice, where we treat people disrespectfully? Is there justice against us? Do we come under God's wrath? So we're going to look at what exactly brings about God's wrath. So he says that against God's wrath is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So two things, ungodliness and unrighteousness. The first thing, unrighteousness, right? So what does that mean? Unrighteousness, it means when we fail to treat other people as image bearers. We we believe that people, human beings, deserve to be treated in a certain way, right? We have it in our constitution, right? It says we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, Right? We have it in our constitution. We believe that people ought to be treated in a certain way, that they are image bearers. Right? Unrighteousness is when we fail to treat people in line with their image, when we treat them and when we use them, when we abuse them, when we discriminate against them, when we gossip against them, when we do all of these things, we are failing to treat people in a way that they ought to be treated as image bearers of God. And so he says all of us have done this in one way or another. All of us have failed to treat others as they ought to be treated and our failure to treat others in that way, it brings about God's wrath because God is God of justice. And so that brings God's wrath. But it's not just that. It's not just our unrighteousness and our failure to treat people as they deserve, but it's also ungodliness. Do you understand that our, our rights only come because God has rights? The only, the only reason that we care about the image, right, that we are image bearers is because we care about God's image. And ungodliness is when we fail to treat God as he deserves. You know that God has rights. God ought to be treated in a certain way because of who he is. And so when we fail to give God his rights, right? when we fail to live in light with the infinite worth of who God is, God deserves to be worshipped, deserves to be loved, deserves to be considered. And when we fail to treat him in line with those things, it's ungodly. And it demeans him and it diminishes him and it shoves him to the side. And God is just. And so God's wrath is being revealed against both our failure to treat other people as they ought to be treated, our failure to treat God. And if you want to know what that looks like practically, look at the Ten Commandments. We just spent a whole series on that. You want to know what it fails? You know, it, God says, put me above everything else. You know, he says, don't take my name in vain. When he talks about, you know, how you're to treat others, he says, be generous, don't steal. He says, love them and don't murder. Right? He goes through and lists all these things, what it looks like for us to interact with one another and for us to interact with God. But all of us have failed to measure up to those things. So we see that uh, we see that all of us who have heard of God, know God, we fail to treat other people as they deserve. We fail to treat God as he deserves. But Paul answers a question here, right? There's a, there's a question. Okay, well, I've heard of God, and I know I've failed to meet of God, but what about those people that have never heard about God? Right? I mean, I, I don't know if you, but I've heard this argument all the time. Listen, what about those people that have never heard about God? They're not really guilty, are they? Because they don't know they haven't heard. And it's to this question that Paul next turns. Right? He says, they suppress the truth. In 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them 
because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. They are without excuse. So what is Paul saying here? Paul says that creation testifies. It's a witness that shows who God is. It it reveals that there is a God. And so Paul says, listen, no one, no one is without excuse because everyone has the witness of creation. You can't look at a painting and not think that there's an artist behind it. How can we think and we can look at creation, look at a beautiful sunset, look at an amazing, amazing night with the stars filled, look at a mountain and think that there's no artist behind it. Think that there isn't a God who painted it. When you look at a car, you don't think that all of a sudden it blew together, right? But you know that there was a designer, that there was someone who was intentional and took time to create it, to fashion it, to form it. How much more complex is the human body, let alone our world or even our universe? And when we look at these things, not to think that there was a God of complexity, a God that, that brought these things, a mind of order that made all that we see. Not only this, but have any of you seen something come from nothing? I haven't. That's just me. And so God, we, we hold it, right, that all of these things, there was a creator, there was a first cause that brought about all other causes. Everything that we see is dependent. It, it, it relies upon something else. Whether it's our world, our solar system, our galaxy, all that relies upon something else, whether it's the laws of nature or whether it's, whether it's us and it's just air, all of us are dependent. What is the independent cause upon which everything else rests? What is everything else founded upon? What is the concrete, the grounding that gives everything the foundation to build upon? Do you see that by looking and by thinking at, at nature and by seeing the world around us, we know that there is a God. It's not just these arguments. You know, I can go to, my mind easily goes to philosophical arguments. But I know many of us, we get out into nature and we can't help but worship. I mean, that's why, like, I think about me, I love fishing. I love being out and I love being on the water. I remember a time where I was out at Sunset Beach and I just stopped because the clouds were dark and there was just a beam of light that shot forth through and you see a sailboat and it just is golden. It looks like the water's falling off the edge of the earth and you can't help but worship. You can't help but marvel, not at what you see, but at the person who made what you see. And this is what God has done, is he has put all these things around us that we might see, that we might worship him, that we might look at the sunrise and say, man, how good is God? That we might taste you know, a delicious steak and we might say, how good is God that he would give me, that he would give me this? And so all of creation testifies, it goes to show that there is a God. And it says that we suppress that truth. We suppress that truth. We, we refuse to acknowledge God, creator God. And this, this brings about God's wrath. Can you understand? When we plagiarize, when we say that I've done something and we totally ignore God, when we say, listen, we praise the sunrise when really we're supposed to see the artist, wouldn't you think that would make an artist a little frustrated when you're sitting there talking and you totally ignore that the artist is the one that brought it about? God is the artist, and when we ignore him and when we push him to the side, it brings his wrath because we are not treating him as he ought to be treated. We are stamping, stamping and, and stumbling over his rights. So what happens when we suppress the truth? 
right? He, Paul goes on, he says, there are certain things that happen when we suppress the truth of God. Namely, he says that our thinking becomes futile. He says that our thinking becomes futile, and not only that, but our hearts become darkened. So futile thinking, darkened hearts. He says that our thinking, what, and what does futile thinking mean? What, is it, what does it mean? He says that our futile thinking, it, it makes leaps in logic. It's that we're forced to deny what's obvious. That our hearts become darkened, it means that what once they were sensitive to, what once we knew was right and wrong, they become hardened to. And we're no longer able to discern or recognize what was good and what was holy. And we begin to trample over things that before we would have been cautious and we would have been wary because they were precious. They were precious. You see, that only when we live in line with who God is are we able to live a consistent life. Let me just give an example. So all of us would say that, yes, there are certain things that are right and wrong. You know, like it is it is wrong to kill innocent babies, okay? It is it is wrong to go over and commit genocide. We would say that there are certain things that we know, we know in the, in the core of who we are that these are right and that these are wrong. But if you don't have a God, why? Why are those things right or wrong? What makes them right or wrong? Do you, are you the arbitrator are you the one that says, listen, I get to determine what is right or wrong? Is authority, is moral authority in you? Because that's a pretty scary place because that's anarchy. Because everybody gets to decide what's morally right or wrong for them. And and people can do whatever they want. It, maybe it's right for them to kill someone. And who are you to go against their moral authority? You have no right over their moral authority. They can do as they please. So we don't want to say that moral authority rests in the individual because that's a very scary place. But we also want to say that moral authority rests in the culture and society because what happens 40, 50 years ago when Germany goes and decides they want to kill 6 million Jews and start to take over Europe, if we say that moral authority is found in a culture, then we have no right to go over and to stop them because that's their culture's perspective. And who are we to go over and impose our culture's moral authority upon them? Isn't that pretty bigoted and arrogant? What we see is that only when we realize that authority is actually found in God, that God has given us his word and given us his law that declare what is right and what is true, only then are we able to live in a way that's consistent. Only then are we able to live in a way that actually leads to human flourishing, where it's our good. And so you see that, that only when you realize that God actually exists are you able to live a consistent and thorough life. That's just one example among many. Among many. So Greg Banson, he has, uh, he has a quote, and I think it hits it right on the head. He says, imagine a person who comes in here tonight and argues no air exists, but continues to breathe air while he argues. Now, intellectually, atheists continue to breathe. They continue to use reason and draw scientific conclusions, which assumes an orderly universe, to make moral judgments, which assumes absolute values. But the atheistic view of things would, in theory, make such breathing impossible. They are breathing God's air all the time. They are arguing against him. I hope you see that that God's existence actually is the grounds that helps us to make sense of all of our lives and how we think. So what's what causes God's wrath? It's we suppress the truth, right? We ignore God. We suppress the truth. But when we suppress the truth, there's something else that happens, right? We don't stop worshiping. We were, we were created to worship. We were made to worship. Um, Keller says this, we are telic creatures. We are purpose people. We have to live for something. 
There has to be something which captures our imagination and our allegiance, which is the resting place of our deepest hopes and which we look to to calm our deepest fears. Whatever that thing is, we worship it. And so we serve it. It becomes our bottom line, the thing we cannot live without, defining and validating everything we do. What is it that you worship? What is it that your life revolves around? What is it that you can't live without? Because what he says here is that the root cause of the wrath that's being given is that they've made an exchange. You see, they have exchanged God's glory, the immortal glory, they've exchanged it for created things. And they've began to worship creation rather than the creator. And this is what brings their destruction. This is what brings their destruction. You see, we were made for worship. We were made for worship. It was ingrained in us. And we will worship. But what we will worship will either save us or destroy us. What we worship will either save you or it will destroy you. So what is it that you're worshiping? So we've talked about the cause of God's wrath, right? The cause of God's wrath, suppressing the truth, exchanging. We make an exchange in that. So what does God's wrath do? What's the consequence of God's wrath? Right? And uh, in verse 24, it says, therefore, right, making a conclusion. Therefore, God makes a conclusion here. He says, God gave them up. Three times he says that, God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up, in three consecutive passages. And so we see the consequence, what, what God's wrath is, it, God gives them what they want. God says, if you want that, if you will persist in rebelling against me, if you will persist in hardening your heart against me, here you go. And he gives them what they want. He gives them over. And what this says, it says it gives them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. And that word lust, it's, epi- it's, uh, sorry, it's epithumia. And literally what it means is it means over-desire, right? It's an over-desire. And so what most of us struggle with, the idols in our lives are usually not, sometimes they're really bad things. Most of the time they're good things that take the, take the spot of, of God. We elevate a good thing to a God thing and it thereby destroys us. Do you see that what Paul's saying here, what God is saying is that the worst thing, the worst thing for someone who makes an idol of their work is to get a promotion. Why? Why is the worst thing for someone that makes an idol of their work to get a promotion? Because it continues them in their idea that work reigns over all. And it justifies them in their mind that they can continue destroying their marriage spending time away from their kids because what really matters to them is work. And it seems to be going so well. And it seems to be giving them all the validation that they want. Right? I feel important. I feel successful. So why do I need to focus on my marriage? Why do I need to focus on my kids? Because this is giving me what I I feel I need so deeply. The worst thing that a person who thinks that they need money is to hit the lottery. Right? That's the worst thing because it will destroy them. All the money that they think will, will finally fulfill them will actually, it will... It will wear them out. Do you see what happens in idolatry? Is that you you go in and you think that this thing is going to bring you freedom. You do. Like we, we think that our job, we think that our spouse, we think that, you know, like this hobby, another weekend fishing or, or whatever it is, we think that this is going to bring us freedom. It's going to bring the rest that we've just been so longing for. You know, like our hearts just need this. Don't you need, don't you know? Like I, I need this because if I don't get this, then I just don't know where I'll be at. And we rationalize it. We talk to ourselves like that. And, and what happens is, is that at the end of it, 
we're no more rested. Instead, we're actually more desiring and more tired than we were when we began. It's like salt water. It, you drink it, and it continues to make you thirsty, even if you think that you're appeased in the moment, that it, it will continue to enslave you. And so what promises freedom on the outset? It actually brings enslavement and makes you a prisoner. It's like the kids with candy, right? They think and they just see the sugar rush, but they don't know that actually what comes after is going to be pretty painful. It's going to seek actually... If you eat too much, it's going to really hurt you. You see, this is what happens when we take good things that God wants to give us and we exchange it for him. God longs to give us good things, but only when we put him first, only then will the good things not destroy us, will they not capture our heart. So what are you prioritizing over God? What is it that you struggle with? I want us to turn first Paul says, and he talks about like impurity, he talks about sexual immorality in general. But I want to turn, I want to focus most of our attention in verses 26 and 27. And so if you're Bibles, I want you to turn it and I want you to look at this. This is probably one of the, the most debated, most controversial passages, especially in the last five to ten years as we've had a, a huge debate, whether it's been political, um, people want to... Say it's the church versus, you know, people that struggle with same-sex attraction. Um, and so I want to talk, and I want to spend a little bit of our time unpacking this passage and talking about some of its implications. So first, let's deal with the text. It's verses 26 and 27. He says, for this reason, God gave them up, right? So this is the second time he talks about God giving them up. He says, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, right? So, so we see that what he's talking about, they're dishonorable passions. Whatever it is he's talking about, they're dishonorable He says, for their women exchanged natural relations. And this, this word natural, it's paraphusin, and what it means is like contrary to nature, contrary to the creator or the way that God had made it to be, it exchanged it and it is, it's subversive against it. So there, it's contrary, contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women. And were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves a due penalty for their error. Now this is probably the largest text in the New Testament that talks about the matter of homosexuality and talks about same-sex attraction. And what some people will do as they approach this text is that they will try to explain it away. And they'll say something along the lines of one of these things. Well, this passage, it talks about really people that are heterosexual and they're going against their passions. But we see that this isn't the case because what Paul says is it's contrary to nature, not contrary to their nature, right? He's not saying that they have a nature desiring an opposite, desiring females and they're going against their natural inclination. He's saying it's contrary to the natural order of things, to the way that God has created it. Okay, so he can't get away in saying it's people that are, you know, heterosexual and, and then going into homosexual relationships because that's not at all what the text says and it's pretty clear on that. So it's, it's not just that, but some people will say, well listen, in the, in the first century, they didn't really have monogamous, long-term, same-sex relationships. Right? What you have a lot of times in the first century is that you have this Greek idea of a, a man coming alongside a younger boy and, and teaching him in our view, very perverted way of teaching him the way of a man, teaching him to have sex and to do those things. And that was what would happen in the first century. But it's clear that Paul's not talking about any of those kinds of instances because he makes mention of both females and males. 
right? And so lesbianism didn't have that kind of expression the first century. And that doesn't hold true either because Paul traveled the entire Asian province. Paul traveled most of the known world back in that day. Paul would have been familiar with those who were in longer-term same-sex relationships. That wouldn't have taken Paul by, surpri- Paul by surprise. He wouldn't have, have come across that and thought, oh, well, I, I just haven't thought through this one. No, Paul would have seen these things, especially because he's writing this from Corinth. Paul is writing the book of Romans. He's writing this passage from Corinth. He would have been very familiar with same-sex relationships. So just because there were same-sex relationships, Paul's talking about that. Paul, this is included in all of this. And so Paul is saying that this is, it is a dishonorable passion. It's an over-desire. It's an over-desire. So we, we see that the passage is pretty clear that it's talking about same-sex attraction. But it's not just this. We have the entirety of the, of the, of the church's witness. There's a really good book that's, um, uh, called, uh, Walk, uh, washed and waiting, I believe it is. Um, and, uh, and in it, uh, the, the author is a Christian and he struggles with same sex attraction. And one of the things he talks about, he says, listen, there, there are verses that talk about this, but he says, it's not just these verses. It's not just this text. It's not just that text. He says, what really solidifies it's true, and he's a celibate Christian. He is denying and he's walking out his, his singleness for, because for whatever reason the Lord has not taken that desire from him. He's walking it out in singleness. He says, what really gravitates and pulls my heart, and I know that it's true, is the entire story of Christianity. Is that we have a setting in which we know that our desires are bent, and that there will be one day be redemption, and that in the midst of that thing, that we are called to deny ourselves. You see, all of us have desires that wage war against our souls. All of us have things that grip us that we have to fight against. And so it's not just those who struggle with same-sex attraction who understand that there are passions that lie in their heart that they must wage war against. And only Christianity actually offers a reply to this. You see that if you don't have God, if if God is out of the picture and you have same-sex attraction, you have homosexuality, then what that is is it's a genetic weakness. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just trying to be honest. If you have, take God out of the picture, what you have with homosexuality is you have a genetic weakness and you have something that actually hinders the advancement of the species. And so we don't want to say that homosexual people or struggle with that are actually lesser humans or lesser to the species because that's what you must say if you don't believe that there is a God. What we as Christians believe is that those who struggle with same-sex attractions are actually full image bearers, that they deserve to be treated with, with dignity, with respect, with love, but that they have a bentness, just as all of us do, that it expresses itself differently than perhaps our bentness does. And so only, only in Christianity are you actually are able to understand and love someone deeply rather than demean them and dehumanize them. So we see the text. I want to talk real quick. If you're here and perhaps you, you struggle with same-sex attraction, maybe nobody knows. Maybe you've hidden it. Maybe you have desires and you don't know how to deal with them. I want to tell you that God loves you. God knows you. He knows exactly what's in your heart. He knows the struggle. He knows the hurt. He knows the pain. He knows the, the tension that you feel trying to figure out how to act, how to appear, what to do. And he's in you. He's in the midst of that with you, that he loves you deeply. And I hope that you know that you're loved here, that you have a a church family and a people that want to come alongside you, that want to love you, that want to encourage you, that want to walk with you in life rather than to point a finger and, and to demean you and to harm you. But we want to love you. 
the other thing I want to say is that you are not defined by your desires. You're not defined by your desires. And so if you struggle with same-sex attraction, I want to liberate you from the lie that you are your desires because you're not. Your personhood is bigger than what you happen to desire. And that you can desire something and still be seen as loved even though we disagree with what you desire. And the last thing is that your experience isn't the greatest indicator of what is true. Because you see what happens in this struggle is that I experience this passion and so therefore my experience trumps everything. And I, I want to tell you that your experience doesn't. Your experience doesn't trump everything. right? Your, your experience is not the greatest source to truth. Rather, God's word is. And that only when you submit your experience to the lens of God's truth and God's word will your experience begin to be transformed and will you begin to be renewed and begin to be healed and so your experience is not the greatest indicator of what is true. I want to talk to us as the church. So, first, we as the church, we are entrusted with the scriptures. We don't get to make up the scriptures. Okay, God, for 2,000 years, the Bible has been transmitted to us, a tradition, uh, and, and our understanding of the scriptures have been given to us. This isn't something that we can now in the 21st century say, listen, I don't agree with this anymore, so guess what? I'm going to amend the scriptures. The scriptures are not up for us to change, right? They're up for us to to steward, to love, to care for, to make known, to bear witness to, to, to speak truthfully. And so, first, we are people of the word. We as a church are the people of the word. And so we submit our lives underneath the weight of the scriptures. And it is what brings us freedom. And so it's not up for, for us to just change these texts. And, and what has been handed us for 2,000 years is that this is sinful. It harms people rather than liberates them. And so we don't, in the 21st century, say because it's unpopular now, because cultural consensus has changed, that we now change our opinion or our status. Because what we do is we don't listen to political ideologies. We listen to the scriptures. We let the scriptures define what we think and how we act and and what we say and how we love. Not not Fox News or CNN, okay? We let the scriptures define us. So, first, we are in trust with the scriptures. Second, homosexuality is a sin, but it's not the sin. It's not the greatest sin. It is a sin, okay? We need to de- evaluate our our emphasis and how we hate and 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 show undue pain and or, or give undue pain and harm to those that, that struggle with same-sex attraction okay because he goes on and he, and he says listen there's envy do you have envy have you ever looked at somebody and said you know i really want that and i hate it that they have that and i don't you ever had that yeah i, I bet all of us have guess what we're in the same boat okay all of us all of us have struggles with our desires that we have to submit to god and so homosexuality is a sin, is not the sin or the greatest sin. And so our hearts as a church have to be bent towards compassion. Because we of all people should know what it's like to fight with our own sin. We should be the first people to admit, listen, you know the greatest sinner? It's me. My own heart has the deepest evil I know of. And so when we approach other people in their sin, we must approach them with great humility and great compassion. But yet with great boldness because we know the truth. It's been given to us. The last thing that we as a church, we have to, we have to, we have to be the church because if we are not the church, then we are helping those who struggle with same-sex attraction to walk in their addiction and their, and their, and their 
sinful desire. And what do I mean by that? I mean, is your family open to allowing somebody who struggles with same-sex attraction to come and be a part of it? Because I want you to imagine one of the deepest desires of all of our hearts is to belong, is to be loved, is to be part of an intimate community, intimate relationships. And if for some people, when they come to Christ and they have same-sex attraction, the Lord takes it. For whatever reason, they are, they are able to, to go into a, a, a heterosexual relationship and, and praise the Lord. And God can absolutely do that. But for some reason, God sometimes in his sovereign purposes allows that struggle to remain. And in those instances, what has to happen and what we have to do as a church is we have to be living life with one another in such a way that they are able to come and be a part. That while they might not be able to go and have a lifelong partner, they have some place where they're able to be a big sister. They have a home where they might be an auntie, where they have a church where they know that they can serve and they can serve with their time and their giftings in a way that builds up people. This is for those that, that know and are submitting to Christ and are struggling with their desire, is that we have to be a safe place for people to come, for people to grow, because you didn't change like that. Neither did I. It was a process. God slowly changes us through his grace. And so, too, we have to be a place of grace. We have to be a place where people come in and are able to walk through in the midst of their struggles as they figure out who God is and how he loves them and how he wants to save them and rescue them and what his plans for their life are. And so we have to, this is where, this is where our saying, listen, I'm not going to be a part, I'm going to go do fishing on the weekend, or I'm going to go and do what I want to do and miss out on community groups is bigger than us. This is why we do life groups. This is why we need one another. Because when you fail to do this, we are actually helping them to indulge in their sinfulness. Because they say, well, listen, the church, there's no place for me to plug in. There's nobody that's there for me. And so What's the next thing? They're going to turn, and as most of us do, we turn and we just go back into what's easy for us. We go back into what's natural, what we want to do. And so we have to be committed to one another. We have to be committed to Christ and to the church because I honestly, I think the reason that our culture is the way it is because we as a church have not loved and have not been committed to us, to being a church, to loving people and walking alongside them, to giving them a place to express what it means to struggle. And so I hope you see that, man, God God loves us and he has a plan, right? That, that our current 21st century struggle doesn't define us. God's scripture does and he wants to work through us to breathe healing and love into where we're at right now at this time in our history. Paul ends by talking about that in, in verse 28. He talks about that since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, they were filled and we, we talked about that all of us have desires that we struggle against. And he says, but here's the thing. Here's, here's kind of the capstone of Paul's argument. He says, though they know God, in verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die. He, he's listing all of these things. All of the things, all that whole long list. He says, those who practice these things deserve to die. Because they are failing to treat God as he deserves and they are failing to treat one another as you know, as, as we ought to be treated. They, they bring death. But regardless of whether they bring death, they say that this, they do not only do them. So, so we, we, they at times don't only do these things, but then they approve of those who practice them. You see, one of the, one of the biggest ways that we can hurt others is by approving of something that actually will lead to their destruction. Isaiah 5.20 says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet 
for bitter. It's when we approve of what is evil that we truly seek to destroy someone. We must be a people of boldness, a people who speak the truth in love. Are there times, are there places where you indulge other people's sin? Maybe it's a it's a job, and you know that they have an idolatrous attachment to it. They put more weight on their job, and you, you promote them in it, and you encourage them to pursue the job, even though you know it will destroy, and you're too afraid to speak up. Maybe you know people that they're, whatever it is, they're idolatry, and you indulge them in it, and you give over to them, and you are afraid to speak up because you care more about their perception of you than their eternal soul. We, as a people, are called not to be cowards. We are called to be bold and to love deeply, despite what people think or say of us. I know it's hard, but that's the example that Christ has given to us. So, we've seen a lot. We've talked about a lot. We've seen the cause of God's wrath, that we suppress the truth, that we... We exchange God's glory for created things that we, we have an idolatrous attachment that this leads us to destruction. That, that the consequence of God's wrath is him giving us over to what we thought would bring freedom and instead bring enslavement. Now maybe you're like I am. I want to hear some good news. <laughs> so I, I want to I hear some good news. So let's look in verse 25 and let's end with some good news about this. Verse 25 it's implicit, okay? It's implicit in here. Verse 25 says, Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So what's implicit in this is, how is it, how is it, maybe you're here, how is it that we can be set free from the wrath of getting what we want? How can we be set free from this? What he says here is that you are set free through worshipping and serving the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The way... The, the root of all of our sin is that we worship falsely, is that we have something that is taking precedence over God, and the way that that is corrected is by seeing and worshiping God for who he is. Jesus talks about this in Luke 15. It's probably one of all of our favorite parables, but it's the, the parable of the prodigal son. There's a, a father that had two sons, and one of the, the younger son came to his father, and he said, Father, in our terms, I wish that you would die. I wish that you would kill over and give me your money because that's all you're good for. And he tells him this to his father. And instead of his father taking him out and having him stoned or beating him senselessly, his father gives him what he asked for. And his father gives the younger son his part of the inheritance. What does the younger son do? The younger son goes off to a far land because he thought that these things would satisfy he goes off to a far land. He spends all of his money on reckless living, drinking, parties, prostitutes possibly. He does all of these things. But what happens? It says after several seasons, after a season, there's a famine that came upon the land. And this young son, with all of his dreams, all of his ideals, what he thought would bring him, him healing and salvation, actually left him destitute. And he finds himself in a, in a pig's pen, working for a farmer, feeding the pigs, shucks and 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 pig slop and he looks at him, he he's so hungry he longs to eat what the pigs are eating and in that moment he comes to his senses in that moment he wakes up and he says what am i doing here how did i get here even my father's servants have better food and are treated better than i am i will go back to my father and i will beg him I will tell him that, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and 
and I will beg that he will take me on as a servant to be worked for and, and so I can have meager meager means and I can be taken back in. And so he goes this whole long way, kind of rehearsing this, what he's going to tell his father. And what happens? That was his father's looking for him. His father is there waiting with open arms, eyes on the horizon, sees the younger son and runs, picks up his, you know, picks up his robe and just sprints to his younger son. Right? That's dishonorable. People didn't do that. Men of honor didn't run. They hire people to run for them. Right? His, his older, his, his father picks up and, and with full sandals sprints towards the younger son, embraces him, tells the servants, listen, give him the best robe, give him the ring, put sandals on his feet, go kill a fatted calf. For my son, he was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and he is found. Do you understand that God, God longs for you to come to him? God longs for us to understand that, that what we think will save us will destroy us and that the way that we are saved from God's wrath is through rightly seeing the Father and understanding his love. For us as Christians, we can rejoice because we know, we know that because Jesus went under God's wrath, we never will. You as a Christian, God will, God will discipline you, but he will never give you up. He will never give you up to your heart. He will instead always rein you back because he loves you. Because you are his son. You are his daughter. I hope that you rejoice in that. I hope that that truth causes you to be thankful in God's love. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you are good. That your wrath is is seen because of your love, because you hate sin, but yet you love us. Help us to be a people marked by your grace, marked by your truth that go out into this world, Lord, that we wouldn't exchange light for darkness, but instead we would see the light and we would proclaim it with great love, with great boldness, knowing that only the light sets people free out of darkness. King Jesus, we love you and we praise you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.